We're beginning a week of glorious weather in Northeast Ohio, just at the time that Laura is heading off for vacation. Laura, you got the wrong week. I it's know, it's going to be warmer in Cleveland than San Diego next week, so you should all enjoy your weather, even if there are no palm trees in Northeast Ohio. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura, as well as Lisa Garvin and Layla Tassi. Let's get through this podcast so people can pay attention to the home opener. Lots of people are asking, now that Larry Householder's trial is over, are the executives at First Energy, when it paid the $60 million in bribes to Householder, ever going to face their own criminal charges? Lisa, there's an inkling that yes is the answer. But it also might be a stalling tactic by their attorneys. So attorneys for former First Energy CEO and Chuck Jones and their top lobbyist, Mike Dowling, they're saying that their indictments in the House Bill 6 case are looming and that they're undeniably at the forefront of the federal investigation over that scandal. Uh, These claims come in a court filing in a civil suit that was filed by First Energy investors. But the attorneys cited these looming arrests as a reason to delay the depositions of their clients. They've been fighting since last summer to get these depositions from Jones and Dowling. They have a current deposition date in May, but they're seeking to delay that until September. So I don't know. But the investor plaintiffs, you know, are furious. They say that this delay in depositions affects the central tenet of their suit, which is fraud. And they say that there are, there's no evidence in their mind that their arrests are imminent. Well, I do think, though, that defense attorneys, by filing that, I mean, if that's not true, they're, they could get in trouble. Like Their law licenses would be in trouble if they're just making that up. I wonder if the the various folks who have yet to be charged watch what happened with Householder and realize they're going down, they're going down hard and are negotiating and that we won't see an indictment necessarily. We'll see an information filed where they're agreeing. And you'd have to be out of your mind to fight this if you're Chuck Jones. Your company has already said we did it and paid huge fines. And you were the guy making the decisions. And now Larry Householder's been convicted and This is very ugly for him. I do think an orange jumpsuit is in his future. And the only smart play is not the householder route. It's negotiate the best deal you can get, which is which is if that's happening, I could see the attorneys saying this is looming. Well, you know, in that $230 million, uh, you know, deferred prosecution agreement that First Energy made with the DOJ, they agreed to cooperate after admitting bribing Householder and, and former PUCO chair Sam Randazzo. So I don't know if there's a plea deal, but it's weird that they, they want to keep pushing off those depositions because they fear imminent arrest. Well, the danger is the judge will say, all right, there's there's conflict here. Let's have an in-camera conversation. Show me what evidence you have that an indictment is looming. looming. They can't just speculate. They'd have to have concrete information, Mm -hmm. which when Mm -hmm. I saw this, I thought they're they're taking the smart move. They're making a deal. Look, when the feds come after you, they generally have you. And the only smart play is to negotiate the best deal. And householders learned the hard way that 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 kind of chutzpah is going to cost him. The guys that went to trial instead of making a deal are going to get hammered in their sentence. So any day now, we may finally see justice. It has taken far too long. I mean, this scandal is coming mm-hmm. up on three years old. And for Chuck Jones not to be 
face in the music is scandalous. If this were any of us, we would have been booked long, long ago. This is what happens mm-hmm. when you're wealthy and formerly powerful. You're listening to Today in Ohio. East Cleveland government continues to be in an uproarious mess. I didn't realize that the former mayor, Eric Brewer, was part of the story. Now I understand the latest shenanigans, the weird filings that we're going to be talking about. That's got to be from Eric Brewer. Laura, what's going on? Yeah, so city council members actually went to East Cleveland Municipal Court on Thursday. They accused the mayor and the finance director of dereliction of duty for failing to follow the city's budget. As we know, they have been in... A budget crisis for more than a decade now. And East Cleveland can't, can't they definitely can't pay all the, the judgments against them. And they're saying that Brandon King, the mayor, has spent more than $10 million more than the $26 million budgeted that from council. So on Tuesday, council voted to file these allegations against Brandon King, as well as the finance director, Charles Eian. And it's for dereliction of duty and recklessly creating a deficit. But then they had a press conference and then they went and filed this complaint under a state law that permits someone to bring criminal allegations in court against others. But it it does feel like something there. There's been so much infighting in Cleveland, uh, East Cleveland City Council for so long. But this is an actual court case. I I don't know what's going to happen with it. Except it's wacky logic. Look, anybody that's received emails and messages from Eric Brewer over the years knows he constantly goes to the Ohio Revised Code to teach you about the the weird machinations in it. He's always pushing some kind of strange legal theory. This is a very bizarre move to go to municipal court with a criminal complaint against the mayor. It's the kind of thing that he would always talk about. And it'll be interesting to see what happens next. This this city is just in constant disarray. Why the council would hire such a disruptive force, the fire starter that is Eric Brewer is beyond beyond rational thought. That's a really good question. And obviously he's he's an East Cleveland former mayor, right? Like he's been a long time in the city and probably is very divisive. I mean, he is very divisive. Um, A a community activist and deputy council clerk said Brandon King, the mayor, spent $18,000 to engrave his name on a city basketball court, which I don't know how many more examples they have of this, but it is just kind of like you're broke. Like you can't, Mm. you can't hire police officers. Remember? I mean, they're down so many officers because they're all indicted for crimes and they can't pay their officers enough to really get good ones. And this is what they're spending their money on. If it's true. I mean, the problem with this is I can't, you can't believe any of this just because of the way things go there. The mayor is raising questions about how they could even hire Eric Brewer into the position they've hired him in. They've hired him in as council clerk. So who knows? It's just, I, The people who live in East Cleveland continue to be very poorly served. And it's sad that that, that East Cleveland can't be incorporated into Cleveland or be unincorporated into a township because this is this is hurting the service to the residents and they deserve better. They do deserve better. I, I, I wonder what it feels like to feel so like you don't have any power in the city that. And, and the voting was really, the turnout was really low last time, too. So, yeah, it's not great government in there. You're listening to Today in Ohio. With the move to change the Ohio Constitution to legalize abortion underway, why is Governor Mike DeWine calling on lawmakers to rewrite abortion laws now? Layla. 
Basically, when voters go to the polls to decide on the Reproductive Rights Amendment, DeWine wants them to have something solid to compare it to. And right now, the state's abortion laws are are kind of a mess. I mean, tossed out by the courts because they're either too vague or they're overly broad or not explicit in their exceptions. Take, for example, you know, the heartbeat bill, uh, the heartbeat law that bans abortions from the point at which a fetal heartbeat can be detected, which is around six weeks. There are exceptions for abortion procedures that are necessary to save the mother's life. But that exception was so vague that doctors have said they feel uncomfortable risking their medical licenses by potentially running afoul of the law. And of course, that's all tangled up in legal challenges right now, too. So DeWine said that he suggested to members of the state legislature that they need a bill that protects human life, but one that is sustainable and, and won't be overturned by voters at the polls. He wouldn't say whether that means they should write a new bill or work on the abortion bans that are currently on the books. He just thinks the ballot language for the constitutional amendment is too extreme, and he doesn't think that most Ohioans are aligned with it, but there are no viable mm-hmm. options on the table, and he he wants the legislature to fix that. Yeah, actually, I think he does raise a good point. It, it, if you believe that abortion should be illegal, as he does, and you know the majority of residents want to legalize it, you do need to have a better argument that they have now. The, the current mess does make it much easier for the proponents of the amendment to say, look, look at what the legislators are doing. Do you really want this to continue? Uh, it's a savvy move. I just don't think it'll work because the majority of people in the state do believe that abortion should be legal. The only wrinkle is, is if the sleazy legislators, the hypocrites who are against August elections until it serves their purposes, rush something onto the August ballot and somehow get the rules changed for how you pass an amendment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I I don't think that he is uh, completely in touch with the way Ohioans feel on this issue. I I do think that the constitutional amendment is, is probably reflective of how most Ohioans feel Uh, you know, uh, making abortion legal up until the point of viability. But if if the legislators didn't want the amendment to pass, they could pass a law that may be more restrictive than what Ohioans want, but it's not to the point of ridiculousness and maybe get one passed. But and I think that's what DeWine is looking at. Let's pass a sane abortion law so that we have an argument to make, because what we got now will not fly with Ohioans. I've heard rumblings in the Republican Party that 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 should be their strategy. But again, you have so many crackpots in the legislature that they won't do it. It's going to be Tennessee style governance where they're going to try and ram something through instead of being representation. I mean, what would that what would that look like, though? He wants to ban abortion. So I think what he wants is the heartbeat bill, but with the the exceptions more clear cut, you know, so that it could pass judicial tests. The heartbeat bill will guarantee that a majority of Ohioans vote for the amendment if they did something more more reasonable. Look, this is about strategy, right? If you're smart and you want to get to make it more limiting than it has been, you, you, you do the calculations and you figure out what might Ohio tolerate. If it's the heartbeat bill, they're, they're done. But, you know, we've seen it. I mean, look, Lisa and I were talking before the podcast about what happened in Tennessee yesterday, where some Democratic legislators chanted in the chamber 
because they're upset about what was going on there. And they were ousted from the body. So, mm-hmm. so the voters that put them into their legislature no longer have representation. Interesting that of the three that were up to be thrown out, the two black legislators were thrown out, but they kept the white one. Way to go, Tennessee. But I could see that happening in Ohio. I mean, our, our legislature mm-hmm. is nuts. And I could see them, if, if the Democrats started to say something they didn't like, they could try to oust them. I, uh, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I, I do think, however, that uh, that DeWine will not get his wish here. I think that they're going to just move forward with the with their counter proposal of <laughs> taking away people's constitutional right to pass an amendment um, <laughs> without 60 percent or more of the vote. So I think that's that's their plan A. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's going to blow up in their faces. I, look, just look what happened in Wisconsin. Look what happened in Chicago. I, I don't, the, the, This kind of move is not working elsewhere in the country. It's such a cheat. It's so sleazy that I think Ohioans will reject it. There'll be a lot of push to get people to not give away the value of their vote to crackpots who lured things over them. It's not a good look. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Tourism is one of those industries that every state wants to expand. In Ohio, the Tourism Ohio office is in charge of doing that. But now state officials want to change the name and the mission of that office. Lisa, what is the thinking? And they want to do it with the same amount of money. Um, the Ohio Department of Developing Development is proposing that Tourism Ohio be renamed the State Marketing Office. So its mission would expand f- beyond tourism to include attracting new residents, students, and workers to the Buckeye State. Uh, the ODD director, Lydia Mahalik, says, we're losing population and we're in competition for people. But she says they have no intention of changing or diluting their support for tourism and the Ohio Travel Association, which represents lots of uh, tourism industries, was concerned. So Mahalik is going to meet with them to discuss the issues. But she said, we're not, you know, getting rid of the Ohio Find It Here campaign. That will continue, but it may evolve over time. But um, as I said earlier, the proposed budget for Tourism Ohio or state marketing, whatever it becomes, is still $10 million. It's been the same since 2014. So I think travel industry people are saying, well, how are you going to be able to expand your mission with the same amount of money? Yeah, they, actually, I, this seems cuckoo to me. I mean, the, the tourism is a great industry because it either brings people in from out of state to spend money in your state or it keeps people home so that they don't go elsewhere to spend their tourism money. And every state competes for it. Drive into any any state, pure Michigan, everybody's mm-hmm. pushing for this. And the only way you get people to take advantage of your stuff is to publicize it. The second part of this, the marketing, I mean, that's a jobs play. That's what Jobs Ohio is for. Mm, It just mm -hmm. seems like if I were in the tourism business in Ohio, I'd be furious about this because they need that support. And there's a lot of assets in Ohio to trumpet to the world. I don't think people know about it. And this is the way they find out. I'm surprised that, that Mike DeWine hasn't kind of quashed this. 
Well, and and it'll be interesting to see what comes of this meeting between the Development Department and the Travel Association. But Destination Cleveland CEO Dan Gilbert is all for it. He says the change makes sense. We should be more holistic and consistent messaging is important, whether you're visiting Ohio or considering relocation. He says you've got to get people open to living here. Yeah, but Destination Cleveland has been changing its mission to do some of that of late. So that's very Mm -hmm. much in keeping with what he thinks should happen. But if you've got a a tourism kind of industry business in this state, you don't want to hear that they're reducing their emphasis on it, which this will do because the budget's not going up. And again, the marketing side to get people to come here is much more about the jobs. And Jobs Ohio is loaded because it has that liquor Mm, business. I mean, mm -hmm. they are loaded with dough. They should be doing that. Also, yeah, I didn't think of that. Maybe if you want people to move to your state, you shouldn't be known as like trying to take away their voting rights and, and things like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Jerry right. Like maybe you want to be a little yeah. more welcoming for people in your government. Good point. And, t- and tourism is big business it in is. Ohio. Last year, $47 billion, 219 million visitors. Yeah. I, th- this just seems like one of the, the dumbest ideas to come down the pike. In a state where you get lots of dumb ideas. <laughs> Come to Ohio, where natural gas is renewable energy. <laughs> right, right. It's just it, a crackpot is the word of the day. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Which Cuyahoga County voters have reason to go to the polls for the May 2nd primary election, Laura? Well, 30 communities have at least one issue on their ballot. Now, that might be the gas station down the road that wants to sell alcohol on a Sunday, or it could be a municipal court judge race or a city council member uh, primary, because this is the May 2nd primary. Seven communities have tax issues, though, so that's going to hit you in your pocketbook. Beachwood, Garfield Heights, and Independence local schools, Parma schools. Parma has been trying to pass a levy for, I feel like, the entire time I've been living in Cleveland. And they want to build a whole new high school to serve the entire district on the site of Parma Senior High School. Independence? This was news to me, and I really want to dig into it. They have a renewal of a tax levy and also an increase, and that increase would be used to make improvements in town, including tuition-free pre-K for four-year-olds, which I, I hats off to a district for thinking like that. Um, that would be for everyone. They also want armed law enforcement officers in each of their buildings. Uh, if you live in Westlake, you have a library tax on the ballot because their library is separate from the county library system. Also, Seven Hills wants a levy renewal for waste collection. And then Warrensville Heights has a renewal for current expenses. So that's uh, $27 a year for $100,000 of appraised value. The the Parma one, I, if I were a taxpayer in Parma, I think I'd be annoyed because the Parma residents have spoken loudly and repeatedly they don't believe the district needs more money. How many times do they have to go to the polls to say that before the district officials say, we got to live within our budget? I don't know. I, I, I mean, I feel like they keep altering what they're asking for, that, that it, it gets smaller every time. I don't know if they think having it in May, like an August election, means fewer people are going to vote, so they have a better time of passing it. But uh, yeah, it, Also, Parma has been changing, right? Newer people have been moving into Parma. They have affordable housing. Maybe they've got a lot more kids that, you know, or that are being born and people that are (laughs) thinking about their kids in the future rather than a bunch of retirees. I don't know the makeup 
right now. But but they've had recent rejections. This isn't like they've gone five years and come back. They've come back repeatedly. Like, I feel like it's every election. Oh, yeah. there's Parma again. And and the voters say no. I, look, you can say it's too bad that they, you know, objectively, they probably need the money. But the voters are in control of the tax budget. And if the voters say no, live within your means, at some point, you got to live within your means. I, actually, it would be interesting to do a public records request and how much the district has spent on. I know they can't advertise for the levy. Like, that's the job of nonprofits that help out the schools. But just on paying for the plans that keep getting rejected. Okay, You're listening to Today in Ohio. We have more details about the guy who was charged with impersonating a cop in committing other crimes, carjacking being among them. Layla, what are the details? Well, police have cited five incidents between March 7th and April 2nd in which police impersonators have used flashing lights to rob or attempt to rob motorists at gunpoint. So this arrest might be a big step in bringing this crime spree to an end. On March 28th, a 24-year-old victim had arranged a meeting with someone who he thought was selling him cell phones in Cleveland's North Shore Collinwood neighborhood. This victim stepped out of his Jeep, got into the backseat of the seller's car, and the seller was wearing a mask, but the victim sounded like he believed he, he knew this person through mutual acquaintances. And another man was sitting in the passenger seat, and the victim noticed there weren't any cell phones for sale in the car, and he sensed something was wrong. I probably would have noticed that the guy was wearing a mask and something was wrong, but uh, when, when another Jeep with flashing lights pulled up behind them, the victim thought it was an undercover police car and accused the seller of setting him up for an arrest. And that's when the seller pointed a gun at him and the victim took off running. He dropped his keys and one of the men grabbed the keys and they sped off in the in the victim's Jeep. And then later that day, 27-year-old Alfonso Neal of Cleveland Heights was arrested on, on unrelated drug trafficking charges. It's unclear how police linked him to the carjacking or if they had already made that connection before they had swooped in to arrest him on the drug charges. But they did determine he was in that cohort responsible for the cell phone police impersonation scheme. And six days later, he was charged in Cleveland Muni Court with aggravated robbery in that case. So from there, hopefully, maybe they will be able to round up the rest of these guys. I don't know. Yeah, this is one of those scary ones that, that we talked about earlier with, you know, somebody pulls up with their, their flashing lights on. Do you pull over? Do you call police? Do you flee? Uh, the faster they can close this angle down, I think the faster people will feel a little more safe out there. Yeah, I agree. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The Museum of Contemporary Art Cleveland has been in a public relations freefall for three years. It's a very big crisis. Steve Litt tells us it is finally emerging from that crisis. Lisa, what's next? Yeah, they've become more committed to diversity and equity and inclusion of marginalized artists since they went through turmoil and fallout that resulted in two national exhibitions being canceled in 2020 and 2021 and the resignation of their director, Jill Snyder, in June of 2020. They were accused back then of not connecting with the surrounding Black community, and also there were issues with exhibition programming. So in that time, MOCA has, you know, rejiggered and they're paying now more attention to marginalized and artists of color. They've worked with local artists and cultural nonprofits to enhance community engagement. But unfortunately, that process created artistic compromises when they were outsourcing decision-making for what they will exhibit. So um, they are actually 
changing that. They're promoting diversity and equity, but they're restoring the decision-making mostly to the MOCA staff instead of outsourcing it. There are four new exhibits uh, right now in MOCA. Two of them are by Black artists. One is a Hispanic artist, so they are focusing on that. But Steve Litt in his story said that MOCA still needs to figure out how to display their exhibitions and what is difficult architecture. They only have 7,300 square foot of space, and the largest galleries have to be at the top on the fourth floor of the museum. It's a good update. Steve brings everything up to date on this this problem that's been dragging on for some time. Check out the story. It is on cleveland.com. Laura, you're off next week, so you won't be here to talk about your latest installment on child care without giving away the store. How about a preview of the story that's coming this weekend? Sure. I'm always happy to talk about child care. And I think when you send out your subtext messages to your followers, too, you get a lot of responses. I've already gotten emails from people before the story's written or running that they want to talk about it. So basically, I'm looking at it from the business of child care perspective, this idea that if Childcare workers are paid so little, then why is childcare so expensive? Like, is someone just raking in the money on that? And no, I mean, a lot of the childcare centers in Cleveland are nonprofits. Um, some of them are mom and pops, they have one small center, and they're finding it hard to make ends meet. The cost of utilities, food and supplies, everything from food to gas for buses is climbing. They cannot find enough staff. And the thing is, if you don't have enough staff, you can't fill your classrooms, and then you can't really make money because you're paying still a lot of overhead and you don't have enough kids to make that up. So the experts say, and I talked to seven directors of childcare centers. They all emailed me after the original story ran um, almost a month ago, wanting to talk about this issue. And they were really forthright with their budgets and where it goes. More than half goes to salaries. And that's saying something when these folks are making some of them are making minimum wage. Some of them are making $20 an hour, but that's why it, it, it's this cycle. They can't charge more because people are having a hard enough time paying it. And the reimbursement through federal subsidy is really low. So they can't really charge more. They can't pay people more. They can't find enough staff so they can't get more kids. It's this horrific cycle. Yeah. The, the, the worst part of this was where you get into how little they make and I, I just can't get over that you're entrusting children in their most vulnerable years to people and we pay them terribly. It, the whole, your whole purpose of doing this project is to get people to rethink childcare, see it as the vitally important service it is and have more of a public support for it. The wages that are paid to these folks is just abysmal. It is. And Ohio, with their federal subsidy, they pay at the 25th percentile. So that means 75% of the child care centers are more expensive than what the state is paying. And that's even for quality child care rated from the zero to five star system that Ohio has. So the federal standard is 75%. So like, let's just think of that. If you want to accept these kids on subsidy, it might be costing you more to provide the service than you're actually getting paid back. I've already read the story. I recommend it highly. It'll be published this weekend, and Laura should have a good vacation while we all enjoy her story. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We talked a while back about how police wrongly arrested an activist solely because he was carrying a weapon, which was his right. Now the taxpayers will take a hit to make up for that police abuse. Layla, how much? 
Antoine Tolbert is is going to get $85,000 with 30000 of that going to his attorneys. This settles his civil suit against the city of Cleveland, which stems from the, the day last May when police officers surrounded him and held him at gunpoint because he was legally carrying a shotgun while walking down the street. Tolbert, Tolbert is the president of the nonprofit organization called New Era Cleveland. It conducts safety patrols in city neighborhoods with trained citizens. And on the day of his arrest, Tolbert carried a shotgun and a handgun as he was conducting one of these safety patrols in the Glenville neighborhood. This was after there had been a quadruple shooting at a memorial service and a 14-year-old girl was struck by a stray bullet and killed. Body camera video showed officers on this day who initially responded to calls about Tolbert that they acknowledged state law and, and they didn't arrest him. But then a sergeant arrived shortly after that, pointed his gun at Tolbert and ordered him to put down his shotgun. Tolbert told the sergeant, Lance Henderson, he wasn't breaking any laws. And the sergeant said that he was not going to allow him to walk down the street with a gun. And Henderson told officers to arrest Tolbert on a charge of improperly handling a firearm, which makes zero sense, right? I mean, it's totally, he's just doing what he's, he's uh, entitled to do under the law. And it, it's, a char- it's a charge that only applies t- typically to the transportation of a gun in a car. So this was an improper application of it. Tolbert spent about 36 hours in jail before being released, and it caused all kinds of problems for him. He wasn't allowed to see his kids for a while. He lost his job. I mean, just a nightmare. And a grand jury declined to indict Tolbert on even a single charge. So Henderson is facing punishment for his role in the arrest. Cleveland Civilian Police Review Board earlier last month recommended that Henderson be suspended for 15 days without pay. So we'll see how that works out. But... Tolbert, I guess, is getting a little justice here. Do you get the feeling that maybe the police don't pay attention to current events and maybe don't understand that the rules have all changed about openly carrying firearms or concealed carry firearms? I mean, you're allowed to carry firearms. You can argue whether it's right or wrong, but the police should know that, right? Well, don't you think that they should be trained up on this kind of stuff? Anytime there's a, a law change like that or that there's, I mean, that should be incumbent upon their supervisors to create training curriculum that helps them understand the application of new laws. They shouldn't be standing there holding someone at gunpoint, debating, which I remember that was the case. <laughs> remember they yeah, right. on the on the uh, body camera footage, you could hear them debating how okay, what are we what what are we supposed to do here? Is I think he's allowed to have a gun, but you know, I don't know, is this scary? So crazy. They should right. they should be Ex- running drills. Well, they should but- be talking about this. This should be a very right. structured training curriculum around gun law. But this this also goes to show that, you know, a black man carrying a gun is scary, but a white man carrying a gun is a good guy with I, a gun. I think Lisa nailed it. I think if this had been like one of those proud boy kind of situations, it, he wouldn't have gotten arrested. Okay, but I, I agree. I, I mean, I think this happens a lot, but Layla's right. With the law changed, you were allowed to do what he was doing. He is 100% within his rights. And police are supposed to understand those rules. I mean, they're, it's their job. And it's hilarious that they're standing there debating, Is the, have the rules been broken? Yeah. What's the law? What's the law? Mm. I mean, the, the man on the street knows that 
that this is legal. So what happened to him? Completely wrong. He deserves to get compensation. It's sad that the taxpayers keep having to pay for bonehead moves by police. They should be trained better so that they don't make these mistakes and deprive people of their liberty unjustly. I personally think he didn't get enough money here in this settlement. Yeah, I agree. I mean, this not only was he deprived of his rights, but this is extremely traumatizing for somebody. And he stood mm-hmm. there and and asserted his rights and he could have been killed. Right. I can't I imagine agree. the nightmares that he has about that moment when he was faced with that uh, decision. What do I do here? Like, oh, my gosh. And then and then he had to eat jail food. Cruel and unusual punishment. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah. Think of all that he he lost his job. I mean, really. And and I'm also wondering, often when cases settle, the city gets away without having to admit any wrongdoing at all. I mean, was that the case here? The city should have had to admit that their officers messed up that and that they messed up on the training of those officers. And publicly apologize, Uh, publicly say we apologize for Mm -hmm. what we did to you, because that's what you do when you make a mistake like this. Yes. You're listening to Today in Ohio, closing out the week. Laura, enjoy your time off. Layla, Lisa, thank you for your wonderful participation. Courtney will be with us for much of next week. And for a few days, we're going to have our State House Bureau editor, Rick Ruan, on for his initial fill-in. He'll be one of our regular fill-ins in the future. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back Monday talking about the news.